Last Sunday, when looking at the feeding of the 5,000, I thought it would be helpful to harmonize all four gospel accounts of that event so that we could really fully understand, grasp the context of what was happening and more importantly, why what was happening was so significant. The section of scripture that we're going to be working through this morning in many ways just demands the exact same approach. This account that we find here in John 6 of Jesus walking on the water recorded in verses 14 through 21, can also be found presented in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 26, and Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Luke is the only of the gospel authors that doesn't include the event. Now, our plan this morning, our strategy, is to tackle the text in in much the same way we did the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to read through John's account, and as we do it, I'm going to add additional details from the other authors, Matthew and Mark, where it's relevant. The big picture helps us get into the big lesson. Verse 14, we're told, then those men, and this is speaking of the 5,000 hungry men that Jesus has just miraculously fed, bread and fish. Those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this multiplication of the elements, They said to one another, collectively, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now back in Jesus' exchange with the religious leaders, he said of their unbelief in John 5, verses 45 through 47, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, please notice the reaction of the multitudes here in response to the feeding of the 5,000. Believing Jesus now to be, what is it? The prophet, a definitive article, capital P. A prophet written of by Moses. This intended to be a bit of a contrast. So John here is contrasting the unbelief of the religious leaders, if you had listened to Moses, you would have known to now the belief of the crowd seeing this miracle, now taking a step back and saying, this is the man that Moses was speaking of. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, the Lord promised to Moses to raise up for them, the people, a prophet like him, like Moses, from among their brethren. This prophet, seen by the Jewish people to be their Messiah, their Savior, the King, while being greater than Moses, we're told in another another place, would be like Moses. So they were always looking for a prophet to be like Moses. And it may be that seeing Jesus supernaturally provide bread in the wilderness reminded them of Moses providing manna from heaven during their wilderness wanderings. Oh, The prophet will be like Moses. Seeing Jesus multiply the bread, they're thinking, that's got to be the prophet. Either way, verse 15. Therefore, in response to this, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. How interesting that Jesus here perceives, he senses, that this great multitude, not just 
5,000. That's 5,000 men. You have the women, the children, this mob. In response to this incredible miracle, Jesus perceives, man, this is about to get out of control. He perceives that they're about to, to come and take him by force and make him their king. They recognize him as the prophet. Now they're, they're going to make him the king. This, this Greek word we have, by force, it implies a violence. Like they were about to act without consideration for Jesus' will or position. Basically, Jesus knew that if he didn't act quickly, this mob mentality was about to set in. Now, it would appear that the fundamental issue for Jesus, and don't miss this, the issue for Jesus, why this worried him, it was not the intention of the crowd, but rather it was their timing. Now, don't forget that according to John chapter 5, verse 18, the Jewish establishment was already looking for a way they could justify killing Jesus. Now, they rightfully knew that blasphemy, this religious charge, it wasn't going to be something that the Romans were likely to sanction corporal punishment. However, if they could pin a charge on Jesus of fostering political unrest, revolution amongst the people, that, that would be a different situation. Keep in mind that it wasn't the conclusion or even the reaction of the crowd that was wrong. <laughs> the irony, Jesus was the prophet, right? And their desire to make him king was appropriate if you understood him to be the prophet. The problem was that Jesus knew he had much more to accomplish before this crowd got their wish. Consider that when Jesus ultimately comes to Jerusalem. During what we call the week of passion, that first Sunday, as Jesus is entering, riding a donkey, what are we told? We're told that the crowd begins to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King. Now, what's interesting is that not only does Jesus do absolutely nothing to deter or restrict the adulation of this crowd, but he's absolutely willing to accept their praise. Jesus even says to the religious leaders, if the people didn't cry out, the rocks would. You see, Jesus knew that before he would become their king, he'd have to first be their savior. Before Jesus would mount a throne, Jesus knew he would have to first bear a cross. To accomplish these things, Jesus knew that his death wished by the Jews and sanctioned by the Romans, was necessary, just wasn't necessary at this time in his ministry. Matthew and Mark's accounts of this story, they provide a bit more context than John's gospel does. Apparently, before Jesus departed, as John says, to the mountain by himself, he does two things in the context of the crowd desiring to make him king. First, we're told that Jesus immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the sea, specifically to the town of Capernaum. John doesn't tell us, but the other authors do. This word made, that he made his disciples get into a boat. The word made means that Jesus wasn't making a suggestion. He wasn't giving a little advice Jesus compelled them by force 
to get into the boat. They didn't want to go. He's forcing them into the boat. But Jesus, we want to stay. No, you're not. You're getting into the boat. It's a forcible thing. He forces them into the boat. He says, go to Capernaum, set sail, almost as though he's pushing them, launching them himself into the water. They didn't want to go, but Jesus made them go. Now, we'll get to this more in our travels through John, but the disciples, probably why they didn't want to go, is that they were actually hoping that Jesus would lead a revolution against the Romans. They were hoping that Jesus would be a king and they would have influence. As such, this scene where the mob begins to stir was the exact thing these men were probably longing for for a while. Secondly, in addition to making the disciples leave, we're also told that Jesus sent the multitude away. We have no idea how Jesus was able to corral such an unruly mob. The word sent, it's actually really com it's complex, it's complicated. In the Greek language, this word sent was most often used in divorce proceedings. When a spouse was legally forced or removed from a home, basically, he made the disciples go, and he sent or he divorced himself. He kicked out the multitudes. Well, after sending the disciples across the Sea of Galilee and these multitudes away, John now tells us that Jesus departed again to the mountain by himself to pray. Matthew and Mark add that his intention for going to the mountain uh, alone to pray, meaning we kind of have to ask, so Jesus, he, he gets rid of the disciples, gets rid of the multitudes, climbs this mountain. He's alone. He's going to spend some time praying. So what did he pray about? Maybe this is how my, my mind works, but what was the focus of his prayer? Now to answer this, we kind of have to turn to Mark because Mark's account gives for us a detail provided by neither John nor Matthew. Mark tells us that Jesus was alone on the land, but then he adds... He had climbed this mountain, and he's alone on the land watching the disciples make their way across the Sea of Galilee. So this is what he's occupying himself. He's praying, but he's watching, meaning that the very subject matter of his prayer was likely the disciples. Understand that there was an important lesson, a critical lesson, that these men needed to understand if they were going to be effective in carrying forth his work in a lost world following his physical ascension to heaven. Sadly, this was a lesson that these men had failed to learn despite Jesus' obvious, obvious attempts to teach them. Now, as we set the stage for the scene to switch from Jesus, so Jesus is on this mountain, he's alone, he's on the land, it's dark. He's watching his disciples make their way across. And he's praying for them. And he's doing this, mind you, while the disciples are oblivious to it. I find that so interesting. Because you know Jesus is doing that today. That Jesus, we're told, that he's in heaven for a reason. And that is, according to Hebrews 7, verse 25, to make intercession for you. So often, when we're in the midst of a trial, tribulation, the grind of life, 
Have you ever find yourself in the dynamic of like, has God forgotten about me? Does God not see me? Is God aware? A very reaction the disciples may have had in the midst of the sea. And yet Jesus not just sees, but he prays. Hebrews says he lives to make intercession for you. Well, we're told in the second half of verse 17 that it was already dark. They had departed in the evening. Now it's the middle of the night. And Jesus, John says, had not come to them. Now, it's obvious foreshadowing, right? And keep in mind that John is writing to an audience years later that have already read the story. So his audience, they've already familiarized themselves with Matthew's account and Mark's account. So John can include this detail because he's not spoiling the story. They already know the end. They know what happens. So Jesus had not yet come to them. And then John says, the sea arose. Literally in the Greek, that the sea was awakened. It was still, and then it was stirred. And then we're told why the sea was awakened. Because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, Matthew and Mark tells us that they're in the middle of the sea, three and a half miles, and we should just kind of pause there. Now for context, both Matthew and Mark tell us, they add, that the conditions on the Sea of Galilee had grown so severe because of this contrary wind, literally a wind that was against them, that the boat is now being tossed by the waves. Now keep in mind, these men were experienced fishermen who had spent the majority of their lives on this body of water. And yet, though they had some skill in certain situations, this great wind, this contrary wind, proved to be a formidable adversary. Mark tells us they're in the middle of the sea, these 12 men, contrary wind, being tossed by the waves, that they were, quote, straining at rowing. Now, the Greek word that we have straining, it means to test by touchstone. It's to refine something, to test its metal, how strong it is. In some instances, the word straining could be used to describe literal torture. Like you could translate this as their, their rowing so vexed them by this point that they were experiencing grievous physical pains. They were being tortured. No matter how hard these 12 rowed, they couldn't seem to escape the mercy of these natural forces tossing them around. And before we get too far into the story, I do want to point out that not one of the gospel writers say that these men were encountering a storm. Unlike an earlier occasion recorded in Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8, when they were caught in what we're told was a great tempest, on the Sea of Galilee, in that story, Jesus is asleep in the bowels of the boat. This great tempest, that's not what's happening on the Sea of Galilee this evening. It's not the situation they faced. You see, instead of a storm, which has its own unique applications, in this instance, these men seem to be facing nothing more than a natural occurrence. 
This was a contrary wind. When we read of a great tempest, it's seismos. It's almost as though that it was a storm that came from below, an earthquake of sorts. Tempest could even have, have an implication of, of a demonic element to it. They were in a storm before, but this is not what's happening here. This is a natural occurrence. There was a, a, a wind that stirred up. It was contrary into the direction that they were rowing. It was a force opposing the destination that Jesus had told them to pursue. And don't miss that. Well, nothing more than a small leg. The Sea of Galilee, if you ever go to Israel, it's one of the, the most kind of shocking aspects of being in the Holy Land. You're just really not ready for it. You stand on the shore and you're like, this is it? Like, I don't know, in your mind, you, I think it's because it's a sea, right? The Sea of Galilee. And yet, it's 14 miles wide, seven miles long. Like, it's not a big body of water. You can stand on the shore and see the whole thing. It's trippy, actually. The Sea of Galilee, where it gets its name, though it's basically a, a lake, it is a lake that behaves like a sea. That's why it was always known as the Sea of Galilee. Uniquely located about 600 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded entirely by mountains, meaning it's not uncommon for these kind of violent and unpredictable winds to swoop off the hills down onto the body of water. The cold air coming off the mountaintops, mixing with the warmer air emanating off the water, it creates a low pressure zone. Winds, big swells. Matter of fact, it's been recorded that the swells on the Sea of Galilee can reach in upwards of six feet tall. You can Google images of, of Jewish people surfing the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting. How long these men have been rowing, we, we really don't know. Other than the fact that Matthew and Mark tell us that what happens next occurs on the fourth watch of the night. And because that detail and its traditional understanding of the fourth watch, it's likely around 3 a.m. Now consider that if Jesus sent them away as the sun was setting, all we're told is that it was evening time, maybe around 6. What happens next is the fourth watch. It means these men have been rowing for nine hours against this contrary wind. And because of the headwind, they find themselves, A, at the point of exhaustion, but they're only halfway across the sea. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but at this juncture, to understand what happens next, you need to realize two things, two things to keep in mind about what we know concerning the disciples at this point in their journey. It helps us with the larger purpose and point of the story. First, there is no doubt in my mind that these disciples are absolutely determined to obey Jesus, right? I, I think we can walk away with that in tow. The master, Jesus, personally put them into a boat, right? Forced them, made them. They didn't want to. Made them get in the boat, shoved it off, and he gave them a clear command, not just to go to the other side. He gave them the destination, go to Capernaum. I'll meet you there. The directions Jesus gave and the destination were crystal clear. Yet, because of this wind in their face, they can't use the sails, right? But even then, that doesn't deter them. They pull out the oars and they begin to row. We're going to get across. 
And then when the winds grow so strong that the boat is being tossed around, making it virtually impossible to row with any type of effectiveness, the men push on, right? Now, they could have easily hoisted the sails, turned around, and gone back. That would have been easy. Headwind, can't go forward with the sails, but I can get back in a hurry. But they still remain determined. They're going to get to the other side. We're pressing on. We're not quitting. They're determined to row, even though they're being tossed around against these natural forces. So first, it's, I think it's safe to say they're determined, right? For nine hours, they're muscling through. The second thing is that I think it's safe to assume <laughs> the disciples are likely to fail, especially in their own strength. I mean, honestly, after nine hours of rowing this boat against a contrary wind, it would have left anyone naturally exhausted, utterly spent, even though these men knew what they were doing as experienced boatmen. Their strength was going to give out eventually. Like, in such a dynamic as we're presented, there wasn't much more they could push forward before they'd have to quit. They weren't going to make it to the other side. Well, back to the story, the second half of verse 19. With all these things in mind, they're determined to get across, they're going to fail. We're told that the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Mark tells us that Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and then he adds this detail, and would have passed them by. He would have walked right by them until Jesus, as Matthew records, heard these troubled men beginning to cry out for fear. It was their cries of desperation that caused Jesus to walk over to the boat. Not only are they struggling against the wind, but now they think they're seeing a ghost or literally a phantom walking on the water. They're freaked out by what's happening. And you would be too, let's be real. Now, while all three writers tell us that Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, Matthew and Mark add that before Jesus said that, he commands them to be of good cheer. It's interesting that these two commands, <laughs> realize the scene. These men are exhausted. The, the, the wind has been against them. The boat is being tossed. You got Judas and the, the book nerd Levi puking their guts up in the back. Like this scene is just nuts. It's chaotic. And then you get Jesus walking across the water. He's going to walk by. They're freaking out. And Jesus says, be of good cheer in his eye. Do not be afraid. Now those two commands, be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. They're issued off of a declaration. And the declaration is, it is I. It's the reason you shouldn't be afraid and why you should cheer, because I'm here. You see, Jesus' very presence in this moment was designed to calm their fears and provide them joy. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, it is I. English butchers this, totally butchers this. This phrase, it is I, in Greek, is emi ego. 
I had to practice that. I probably got it wrong, but I'm not Greek, so you can forgive me. Emi ego. It's what we find in the original language. Now, what makes that significant is that the only other place we see Jesus using this phrase, emi ego, is in John chapter 8, verse 58. Now, in another contentious spat with the religious leaders, Jesus makes one of his most radical declarations. This is what he says. Let me read it for you. He says to the religious leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews looked at Jesus and they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the context of Exodus chapter 3, this statement, I am, was a direct reference to when God introduces himself to Moses as I am that I am. Most amazingly, the singular Hebrew word found in Exodus, hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, is translated into Greek. You want to take a guess how? Emi ego. Like uh, when Jesus says, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, he's saying before Abraham was, emi ego. And then here on the water, when he says, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. He's actually literally saying, be of good cheer, I am. Do not be afraid. You know, what's fascinating is Jesus will use this phrase again later on in the garden. So many people don't talk about this, this scene. This is what I would have loved to have seen. They come to arrest Jesus. They're like, hey, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus walks up and he says this, I am. And then John tells us, in that moment, everyone, it was like power emanated off of those two words and everyone was knocked to the ground. And then they start getting back up and they have the audacity to think that, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna chain up that guy. It's an amazing, powerful word. Eni ego, I am, this term used for God. You see, in this passage, what's significant is that Jesus is emphasizing his deity. He is claiming to be the great I am that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And he uses this as the singular reason that these 12 tired, exhausted, and now frightened men needed to cheer up and not be afraid. It should be pointed out the magnitude and the significance of what Jesus says to these men in this moment, it was not lost on them at all. In actuality, it's at this very point in the story that Matthew tells us, and we're not going to really get into a lot of it, but it's in this moment, as things are happening, we're told that Peter answers Jesus. Be of good cheer. I am. Do not be afraid. And Peter answers and says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. You know, only Peter would ask such a question. But then Jesus says to him, come. And Peter, when he had come down out of the boat, we're told, walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, that it was boisterous, he was afraid. And he begins to sink 
And he cries out one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Then, verse 21 of John 6, they willingly received Jesus and Peter into the boat. Matthew and Mark add that it's in this moment. As soon as Jesus' foot hits the bow, boom, the wind ceased. And then John says, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Excuse me? Like what John is saying happened is that Jesus gets in the boat, boom, the wind ceases. And then Jesus and the 12 and the boat are teleported three and a half miles to dry land. That's what John is telling us happened. Matthew, he says that in response to these things, when they had crossed over, when they had come to the land of Gennesaret, that most appropriately, and and you would have too, those who were in the boat, they came and they worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Totally logical reaction to all of that, right? And yet Mark, Mark closes his narrative in such a way that you then begin to see what the underlying purpose of the story really is. In Mark 6, let me read it directly. Mark 6, 51 and 52, we're told that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Like, like don't miss... What Mark, and, and, and Mark is writing by extension Peter. This is Peter's account. Don't forget, don't miss what big thing Peter wants you to make sure you don't miss from the story. Everyone who was present, everyone on that boat, all 12 of these men, their great amazement did not come from the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. That's not what blew them away. Nor were they amazed or greatly amazed that the wind ceased. Or they weren't even blown away the fact that the wind ceased and they were teleported to land like that. Peter, through Mark, tells us that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, marveled. Why? Because they didn't understand about the loaves. Now they did, but they didn't because their hearts were hardened. Now here's the point. Jesus' original command for them to board the boat and go to the other side actually had nothing to do with them getting to the other side. Please know that. It had nothing to do with these men getting across the Sea of Galilee in spite of a contrary wind in their face. That's not the point. Instead, the entire exercise of them getting in the boat, facing this contrary wind, trying to get, the whole point was to communicate to them a lesson they had missed when he took the loaves and the fish and fed 5,000. Which, by the way, explains that as soon as the lesson realized 
What was no longer necessary? <laughs> Rowing against a contrary wind or working your way across the sea. It's as though as soon as they got the lesson, Jesus is like, we're done. And he gets them to the other side. You know, the, the, the point has been hammered home. Why go through the exercise? Now, with the time that we have left, what lessons had these men missed from the feeding of the 5,000 that now demanded a second test? They failed the first time. So what was it that demanded a second go around? First, I think the first lesson is that human strength and abilities are no substitute for God's empowering and presence. This was a lesson communicated in the feeding of the 5,000. We actually talked about it, but it was one these men missed. Again, the entire story begins how? With Jesus asking these men to do something they were naturally equipped and more than able to accomplish. Jesus gave them a task, provided a destination. A boat trip across the sea was no big deal. Like we already know that a quarter of the 12 were professional fishermen. Before they encountered Jesus, the, the likes of Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, they earned a living on the Sea of Galilee. They were born and raised on these waters. They grew up fishing. They spent sleepless nights in the deep. They had navigated storms and contrary winds. Even when this headwind forced them to row instead of sail, they were more than capable. Then when the waves rose and the boat tossed, making rowing absolutely vexing, these men grew more determined. Jesus had given them a command and a destination to reach. And they were going to do it no matter what. Natural forces opposed, so what did they do? They knuckled up and hunkered down. A group of hairy bulldogs. Sadly, after nine long hours, the best their efforts had yielded was halfway. At this point, their strength is failing. These natural forces had driven them to the limit of their natural ability. The disciples were trying their best to obey Jesus' commands, but they were presently finding this task impossible to accomplish on their own strength. Christian, can you, can you sympathize with that description at all? I, I know I can. Like, like our, here you are, maybe this morning, trying your God on his best to obey Jesus. You're trying everything you can to live the life that he's called you to, to run the race set before. But if you're honest this morning, you'll concede that no matter how hard you've been trying, you're tired. Do you sympathize with that? Zach, yeah, you know what, man? I'm worn out. And you know, I know that I am failing. Life, no matter what I do, life just seems to oppose me. You ever feel that way? That life opposes you? The daily grind? You, you almost feel like the disciples, that there's always this, just this constant headwind hitting you in the face, opposing you at every turn. Maybe you're even here this morning thinking to yourself right now, Pastor Zach, 
I can't do it any longer. My strength is failing. I'm at the end. Well, if you're thinking that, let me respond, good. It's great. You can't do it. You're not being asked to do it. And as a matter of fact, your strength has probably been the very thing keeping you from fully relying on Jesus and his strength. (laughs) Your strength has probably been the thing in the way. Always note that Jesus never calls us to pull up our bootstraps and follow him. Have you ever read that in the Gospels? Pull up your bootstraps and come on. No. And says, what does Jesus say? He says, take up your cross. See, it's, it's not bootstraps to pull up, but it's a cross to bear. It's a death that we have to embrace. The truth is that like these disciples facing this contrary wind on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus will very often use the natural forces of life in a sinful world to oppose us. Why? Specifically, specifically to reveal our inability to make the journey he's called us to in our own strength. Do you think it's a coincidence that the very moment the disciples reached their breaking point, there was Jesus? Who's been watching them and praying for them? There's Jesus. Walking on the sea. Like what a contrast, right? A stark contrast. On one hand, you have this group of men trying to obey Jesus with all of their strength, with all of their ability, doing their, their darndest. They are straining at rowing. <laughs> then you have Jesus walking across the sea. That contrast blows me away. The contrary wind and waves were opposing these men at every turn. Forward momentum in their own strength demanded every single iota of their energy, and yet there's Jesus walking across the sea as if it's no big thing, walking in such a way that he would have walked right past them if they hadn't cried out for help. Imagine what it must have been like for the disciples the very moment Jesus entered the boat, right? Think about it. Here you are for nine hours. You've been fighting against these natural forces, doing your best to obey Jesus, doing your hardest to get yourself to the destination he called you to. Yeah, you're tired, you're worn out, your strength is failing. And then the very instance you willingly receive Jesus into the boat, the contrary winds you've been battling, boom, they're gone. And you find yourself at the destination he called you to along. Understand, the entire purpose of sending these men across the Sea of Galilee to face a contrary wind they would not be able to overcome was to strip them of their self-reliance and illustrate to them how desperately they were in need of Jesus all the time. Don't miss that. Think about the flow. You feed these people. That's an impossible command, right? An impossible command the disciples couldn't accomplish on their own ability or their own strength. On the other hand, as experienced fishermen, the command to row to the other side, 
That was something they felt like they could do on their own. And yet Jesus' entire point was for them to realize that apart from his involvement, you can do neither. When faced with the impossible, we get it. I need Jesus. He's got the God name tag. I don't. Advantage Jesus. But then we falsely look at the things we're gifted at. And we think we don't need Jesus. I got that. I can do that. There is never a moment in your Christian experience, friend, you can ever turn to Jesus and say, bro, I got this. Your options really boil down to one of two things. Your strength or his presence, it won't be both. Friend, you need to know that there will always be a contrary wind grinding against your ability to go to the places Jesus has called if you're doing it on your own strength. Or, in the presence of your weakness, here's the other option. You can surrender to a mightier spirit, a mightier wind, the Holy Spirit, that's more than able to carry you to the desired destination. Yeah, there will always be a contrary spirit, but there's a greater wind that you can have in your sails. Your options are you can strain in rowing, or you can walk with Jesus. Not only does the Apostle Paul declare in Acts 17 that in Jesus we live and we move and we have our being, that it's all about Jesus. But then he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In Hebrews, Jesus is described as the author and the finisher of our faith, meaning that the work that Jesus begins in us can only be completed by him. The author and finisher. Jesus not only sets the destination, but it's only through his strength and involvement you'll ever be able to reach the destination. The one he set. And you know, Peter, to his credit, he understood the lesson before the others. Here he is, he's thinking, right? How am I going to get to the other side? Because this ain't working. And Jesus is just walking. First, I need to quit trying on my own. This rowing thing ain't, ain't happening. And secondly, Jesus did say, follow me. So I probably just need to follow Jesus, even if that means getting out of the boat in the middle of the sea and walking on water. And to Peter's credit, two people have ever walked on water. Jesus and Peter. He got out of the boat. And, and by the way, man, I could teach a whole sermon on this. He does learn another lesson very quickly. The only way to follow Jesus is to keep your eyes on Jesus. And he got distracted and he began to sink. And he cries out, save me. And Jesus did. So what lessons had these men missed that demanded a second test first? Human strength and abilities are no substitute for God's empowering and presence. The feeding of the 5,000 should have hammered that home, but they missed it. Secondly, failing to fully rely on Jesus is foolish because he's God. I know that seems simple, but it's still profound. 
the, the truth is that these men should have recognized with the loaves the divinity of Jesus. Everyone present to witness the feeding of the 5,000 should have seen that miracle as the ultimate fulfillment of Exodus 16. Frankly, because everyone missed that point, the Apostle John segues from this story to Jesus' teaching on the bread of life, hammering that home. But the disciples here, they're complicit in their ignorance, which is why Jesus sends them into a contrary wind. Not only does Jesus want them in a situation to demonstrate how desperately they needed him, but then Jesus wants them to also see him for who he truly was, which is why he says, it is I, I am. Ultimately, this is why Matthew tells us that everyone in the boat worshiped Jesus. As what? The Son of God. They saw it. And Mark says they were greatly amazed beyond measure. They marveled. In the Greek, they, they were thrown out of a solid position into one of wonderment. Literally, they're beside themselves. This is insane. Their mind's blown. Jesus was not only the great I am, but he had just proven it. As we close, I want you to consider this. If the feeding of the 5,000 was supposed to declare Jesus' divinity, how did the disciples miss that? Once again, our answer is found in Mark because Mark says they did not understand about the loaves. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. In the Greek, this word hardened, it's actually a medical term. It's an interesting word. It means to harden by covering with a callus. The disciples missed one of the most radical revelations of Jesus demonstrated through the feeding of the 5,000. Why? Because of the callousness of their heart. That's what Peter tells us. So why was their heart calloused? I'm convinced they missed Jesus' divinity because these men refused to accept their weakness. And I think the same happens with us. Again, I mentioned this last week in their book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. The, Lamb. the co-authors, they write this, this, this line I've been, I've been chewing on. They write that operating from our strengths is practicing atheism. It's challenging. You see, it not only makes no sense to attempt a life in our power that fundamentally necessitates his strength, like, not only is that just stupid, silly from just a logical angle, but the attempt to do this, to live a life he's called me to in my ability and not his, it reveals a lack of faith in who Jesus is. Don't miss that. The refusal of my insufficiency means I'm subsequently rejecting the need for his sufficiency. If I'm, if I'm unable or unwilling to admit that I'm unable, I'm in, I'm in turn doubting the reality of his enabling. That's what I'm communicating. If you believe that Jesus is God, then submitting yourself to his strength and rejecting Yours is the only 
logical outcome. If you came here this morning, tired, worn out, beat up, Jesus has allowed such a dynamic. But he allowed it not to do you in. But to get you to accept a most liberating reality. A reality that will change your life. And that is the fact that Jesus' strength, the Bible tells us, is made perfect. Where? In your weakness. You don't have to do it, friend. It's not about your strength. It's not about your ability. It's not about your tenacity. It's about his strength working in you and working through you. Why continue straining against that which is designed to resist you when Jesus is more than able to get you to the very place he's calling you to go? The key simply centers on whether or not you'll humble yourself and invite him into the boat. Or step out onto the water. So Father, Lord, we want to let that settle into our hearts.